I'm Dr. Rose Aslan, and I'm a transformational life coach, breathwork teacher, and scholar of religion who supports helpers, rebels, misfits, marginalized, and spiritual and spiritually curious folks. Welcome to Rahma Throws, where I create a bold space of warmth, understanding, and pluralism in a world that often feels chaotic, polarized, and judgmental. You are not alone, and the stories I share here will reinforce this. Each episode will delve into inspiring stories, practical tips, and thought-provoking and heartfelt conversations with thought leaders, healers, coaches, mental health professionals, and other individuals who are part of the quiet revolution of women healing around the world. So join me on this podcast exploration as we explore what happens when we allow compassion into our lives one story at a time. Today, you'll join me in a heart-to-heart with Dr. Rebecca Masterton, where we dive into her personal journey of finding her spiritual path in a secular British setting. Rebecca opens up about the challenges of feeling like an outsider in a society where spirituality often takes a backseat. She shares her transformative experience of discovering peace and a sense of belonging in Islam. In her conversation, Rebecca gets real about balancing intuition with rationality and the dangers that come with blindly following spiritual teachers. Inspired by her Shi'i theology, she talks about how keeping our rationality in check with our spiritual side isn't just important, it's essential for truly understanding ourselves and the decisions we make on our spiritual journeys. Dr. Rebecca Masterton has a BA in Japanese language and literature, an MA in comparative East Asian and African literature, and a PhD in Islamic literature of West Africa on the effects of secularism and colonialism on traditional Islamic teachings on the self from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Her academic interests include the Shi'i roots of Islamic spirituality, comparative literature, colonial history, and modernity. Dr. Masterton has been teaching for 20 years at universities in the UK and abroad. She is a prominent teacher and speaker, especially in Shi'i circles and conferences around North America and Europe. She has worked in the media for many years, producing and presenting hundreds of programs for Islamic TV channels. Assalamualaikum, Rebecca. Nice to have you here. Walaikum salam wa rahmatullah, Rose. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. It's an absolute honor to have you on Rahma with Rose, and I'm excited to learn about your spiritual journey along the way. I know you have a very interesting one, and I'm excited for others to hear your story. Thank you, and look forward to discussing a little bit about it. Yeah. So before we go any further, could you please tell me about when did you first get interested in spirituality in general in your life, however young you were? I remember I was about 10 years old, maybe younger, and I was just interested in how to connect to people's minds. When I was about 10, I started to write a little booklet on how to read people's minds, Mm. (laughs) and even though I didn't know how to do that. This is one of the reasons I came into Islam, because I had an inherent sense of the spiritual from when I was a child. And although my family was nominally Christian, Protestant Christian, we were not particularly religious. I never really learned much about Christian doctrine. So it was really just a kind of exploration on my own, in my own mind, my own heart for many years. Yeah. Wonderful. Could you tell me more about that? I, I actually love to probe into people's, if yeah. whatever you're willing to share, like you're writing a book to read people's mind, even though you didn't know how to do that. Tell me more about that. What got you into this? What were you reading? What were you looking at around you? And your- I don't really know why I got into that. 
I, I had a fascination for the spiritual world. When I was a child, we used to live opposite a church. So I used to go to the cemetery and go alone. I went alone into the church because back in those days, they used to leave the door open. So mm-hmm. I was very curious about what does the church feel like mm-hmm. when there's nobody in there? I used to like to go in there, nobody mm-hmm. in there. I just feel what it felt like. And then mm-hmm. I used to go to the cemetery. I used to like to be close to the dead. I had a fascination with the dead mm-hmm. and my mother started to find that a little bit disturbing in me. I wasn't really reading any particular books on spirituality at that time. It was all just a scent of it. And then we went to church. For a, it was more of a social thing up until I was around 11 or 12. And then we stopped going. My mother stopped going and I stopped going with her. So really heading into my teens that when we weren't going to church at all. And I was still interested in spiritual traditions. I guess I was naturally seeking something because I had this sense that there must be teachings on the soul. There must be something that trains you to understand our existence more deeply. I didn't know what it was. And I was reading a few books on ancient Egypt and Celtic religion, just because that was what was on the shelf at home. I didn't really pick up the Bible because in a way I had the typical post 1960s modern attitude to the Bible, which was that it's just full of old stories. This fake guru was teaching some meditation techniques and made this whole big kind of mystery about these meditation techniques, which I later found out from ex-followers of this guru. I later found out were very ordinary techniques that you can just get Mm -hmm. extremely easily. No mystery about it at all. This was before the days of Google though. So yes. So he came West and there was no way you could find out anything about where he was getting these techniques for him born into a kind of family that was they were like spiritual guides in their community mm-hmm. and he was the renegade he broke away and went west and got a whole load of western followers as people from india were doing at that time he's still going to this day there's a lot of people that have left him i was listening to his lectures for a while with my friends he didn't come personally but they used to broadcast videos of his lectures at different hotels. So you'd go to a hotel all together in one room and you listen to, yeah, one of his lectures. And then you talk with each other and you talk about him. And he became very much the center of everyone's world. And uh, then I started to see a few things that I didn't like about the way he treated people. And I left. So when I was 21 and I had, by that time I'd moved to London, And I stopped listening. I made a definitive break because I had seen how he bullied and controlled people. Mm. That sounds like it was a very dangerous cult, actually, that you're involved with, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. What did you take away from that experience? Anything positive or mainly just realizing it wasn't a good environment? Started to understand about techniques of manipulation, psychological Mm. spiritual manipulation, because I could see it. And he came to Brighton once. So I'd moved to London by this time and I had friends who were following him in London as well. And he was coming to Brighton for a week or so and he was having all day sessions. He he could talk till the cows came home. And then, so he was speaking at Brighton Centre and and we all went down from London and then it was a summertime. And I remember sitting in this hall again while he's on stage and he's talking and there's a woman in front of me with her two little children. They were maybe eight and nine, and they've got headphones on to be have his talking. I don't know where they were from, but they had headphones on to translate what he was saying. And even then instinctively, again, I was 2021, 20, but instinctively I thought, this is wrong. Your children, because these all day sessions were long, they were tiring, they were taxing. And I just thought it was wrong to take eight and nine-year-olds and make them sit all day listening to this man. And then there came a time where it was one day, it was like, oh, 
he's going to be giving these techniques, the knowledge techniques, as he called it. And you can go along to this room and you can ask him for these techniques. So I went along because I wanted the techniques and I put up my hand and asked him for the techniques. And what he did was he used me as an example in front of the whole room about how not to ask for the techniques and what was wrong with, now I see he was, now you'd say he was gaslighting. He's just making something up about what is going on in my head and how I'm thinking wrong. And after that experience, I was very upset. And then, because it was Brighton, after the session, we went down on the beach with my friends just to sit. And I thought to myself, this guru does is talk about happiness and how to be happy, why you can't be happy, and how if you listen to him, you'll be happy. And I thought, but I'm not feeling happy. If anything, I'm feeling the opposite. I, I'm feeling happier not listening to him. So I thought, so there's no point. There's no yeah. point in me listening to him, following him. If I'm feeling unhappier listening to him than listening to him. Yeah. That was a deciding factor. That's a brilliant use of logic that a lot of people, unfortunately, who enter into cults aren't able to use. So I'm really happy to hear that at the age of 21, you were able to leave that space and that control of that guru. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, I think it was just, alhamdulillah, like following your instinct. And then I left and my friends were like, oh, you're making a really big mistake. Because what he did, as narcissists do, is he persuaded everybody that it's very dangerous. He persuaded people that if you don't have me, that's it. You're going to be lost in the world. You're going to go down some path. You're going to be lost in your head. Yeah. You're not going to find that before. the truth. So. Right. Yes. Yeah. And my friends are yeah. like, oh my God, if you don't have him, it's, that's it. You're lost. Yeah. You're going to fall off the precipice. You're going to fall off yeah. the cliff. Left and tell me you left him and you left this, you know, this realm of spiritual protections, so-called. What happened after that? When you're free after, of that? Yeah. I mean, after that, I was buying a handful of books, still searching. And by that time, I had my first experience of being in a Muslim country because I was doing my degree in Japanese language and culture. I had been in Japan for three months, which I felt was way too secular for me. And again, I didn't have the word secular in my head. It was all just experience. It was mm -hmm. all, everything for me was experience, not mm -hmm. particularly book-based or I didn't have concepts in my mind about secular society or anything. It was all just going by how you feel about something. Mm -hmm. And I left Japan and I went to, because I'm very curious about traveling. I went to Malaysia just for one week. Mm. And I felt so different in Malaysia. I know today it's like just going by feelings is dangerous, but it's how you feel and then processing how you mm -hmm. feel. So it's analyzing how you feel. Like, mm -hmm. why do I feel like this? Mm -hmm. What's going on? So I went to Malaysia and I just found it, I just felt like I could breathe. Step by step over time, I realized that in a secular society where, in a secular society where there's no acknowledgement of the spiritual, there's no acknowledgement of the spiritual realms or the afterlife, that's when I feel suffocated. Because psychologically, for me, it's like we've all got to play this game mm. and pretend. For me, because the spiritual world is real to me, then being in a society where it's not real, it's like asking someone to pretend that it's not real. But let's all play a game where we're pretending that the spiritual realm doesn't exist. So I always felt in a secular society that I'm acting. Let's all just act as if modern society is real. The whole culture of modern society is where it's at. And it's real and it's the truth and it's definitive. And that includes that there isn't any spirituality. Let's all just act in this, on this stage set, pretend it's real. That's how it was for me. Mm. So when I moved to, that was my first experience of a Muslim country, but I hadn't in my mind thought about converting because I didn't even know that was something you could do in a way. Yeah. Mm. So after that, I was reading a handful of books, but not really. Again, it's like, there's got to be a path. There's got to be a way. There's got to be some teachings. And then I, I, I moved in with a young Moroccan woman who was a year older than me. So obviously Muslim from a Muslim background, we became very close. And again, instinctively, she wanted to study Arabic. I told her that SOAS, they teach Arabic. So she started to study Arabic at SOAS. And then she made friends with people from the Arab world who I became acquainted with. I wasn't that close, but I became acquainted with. And 
if this was the age of 21, we'll say maximum 22, again, I made a definitive decision, which was that I'm going to cut ties with people that I know in Western society that I have been socializing with. I am going to stop this way of socializing that you do in the West. Because again, it's all utterly superficial to me. And I think to myself, what would happen if I was in trouble? What would happen if I was dying on the street? Would anybody come and ask who I am or help me? And for me, the answer was no. So then it's, what's the point of hanging around with a bunch of people who are all pretending to have a good time? And back then, it's the early 90s. So it's, and I was in a fashionable part of London, like West London, where all the models are and the musicians and the actor, people aspiring to be actors and so on. So you've got that extra layer of superficiality. We're all fashionable. We're all, again, we're all where it's at. Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss were hanging around in the area. So we're all, and, but then again, in my mind, it's like, but how are we connecting mm-hmm. on a human level? And I just found it lacking. So I cut that at the age of 21, 22. And I, I gradually moved over to just associating with people from the Arab world, mm-hmm. even though they weren't fully practicing Muslims. But that kind of, that started the journey towards Islam. What difference yeah. did you find socializing with them versus the, in the other crowds that you were circulating in? It, it's difficult to exactly encapsulate it, but I felt more of a closeness. And obviously, I might have had a very different experience if I'd been with a whole bunch of different people from the Middle East. So I'm not saying it's like this sums up the whole of the Middle East, but it was... In comparison to British social culture, I found that the way that people socialize from, from at least that was my experience, mm-hmm. there was more of a, a sense of family still. I don't know. There was like this natural closeness mm-hmm. and slightly less superficial. Maybe that, and I, and I felt that was informed by the culture. Mm-hmm. I felt that Arab culture is still informed by Islam. It's still, it still, it carries values from Islam. Even if not everybody may be practicing, fully practicing, that was, that kind of started the move. Again, I wasn't thinking of converting, but it, I just feel I can breathe around people from the Middle East. I don't have to, you know, so, and then she had her year out in Egypt as part of her degree. And I went out there as well to, again, think, I was thinking about, I need to think, have a really good long touch, think about what's important and what I'm going to do with my life and who I am. I guess it's again, privileged Western thing to be mm-hmm. able to do, mm-hmm. take a, take a year out and just reflect. Mm-hmm. But again, in Egypt, again, I'm not saying it's perfect. And I'm sure if I was raised as a woman there, I would have a very different experience. So I do recognize that I was in a position to be able to do that. But at the same time, I just felt I could breathe again in a way I can't in the West. And this was the whole paradox. And when I came into Islam, it's, that's the paradox. You come into Islam, people from the West, you go back West and people from the West are, oh, but what about, it's so oppressive. And what about, this? my phenomenological experience is that I feel I can't breathe own free society. Mm-hmm. I can't, like I said, be myself. I can't be real in my own society. Yeah, I can breathe in a culture or in a society that has ironically is supposed to be oppressive. So that oh, was the tipping point. Yeah. So you yeah. had it. You said you had a year in Egypt, or yeah, it was about six, seven months. Mm-hmm. I would say mm-hmm. about seven months. And what came and out of that? That was my turning point. Mm-hmm. It was like I want to be Muslim. Mm-hmm. Had my first month of Ramadan. That was 1997. Nothing uh, like Ramadan in Cairo. <laughs> Nothing like yeah, Ramadan. yeah. And we were in Alexandria at that time, but we had we went down to Cairo afterwards. But yeah, it was like. I loved the way that the spiritual world was an integral part of daily life. And it wasn't an issue because in Britain, I think it's different in the States, but in British post 1960 society, you don't talk about God. Mm. God is like, oh, you're a bit crazy. Like you're an, we don't talk about God. That's not cool. So I found it incredibly refreshing to be in a society where respect religion. Mm-hmm. I, had no, I had not had that experience. And you had the Alvan, and also that Islam still, I think, helps 
to cultivate that sense of community, togetherness. Whereas in the West, it's hyper-individualism, mm -hmm. which then can lead to neurosis, neurosis and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you've got, I don't know, it's just part of people's consciousness that we are at one level, we are mm -hmm. one together. That was really nice. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like from your early 20s, when you became Muslim in Egypt, you've been also on a long spiritual journey within Islam since then. So how would you describe your spiritual path? And could you tell us more of from that time until now? In a nutshell, I came back to the UK and that was it. It was definitive and it was a fundamental change. I took two years to formally convert, but in that time, it was literally your previous self, your future self. What am I? Who am I? <laughs> and then taking that step, it was very strange. It was like this force that's just, you know, you're coming to Islam and you just have to surrender to it. Some people say, why did you choose Islam? I was like, I didn't choose it. Because I surrendered to it. I surrendered to Islam. But because I recognize it as truth. So then came back to the UK and that was when it was very political. Ifwan Muslimin, very active. Hezbo Tahrir. The Muslim Brotherhood, yeah. Yeah. And that wasn't my cup of tea. So I found a Sufi order briefly. But again, because of my experience with this guru, I was hyper skeptical mm -hmm. about committing to any teacher. And I wasn't very content with, they were trying to encourage us to submit to the teacher. And I was like, no, there's a few things I'm, I'm not happy with about. So I, I, again, I left that group after about four years. I learned some techniques. Ironically, I learned some meditation techniques with them, <laughs> but which I still practice time to time. And then I started to teach at Islamic college, which I didn't know was the staff of Shia. So the Ithna Ashari, 12 Shia. And it was there that I read. This is in their London. Yeah, this is in London. Yeah, I started to teach. I was doing my doctorate. I started my doctorate, and I started teaching at the same time. So, doctorate mm -hmm. part time, teaching part time. Mm -hmm. My doctorate was in Islamic spirituality, because again, this whole experience of existence that Islam opens up, which you don't have in the West. This is what I was trying to get into words. That Islam opens up dimensions of existence. It opens up a way of experiencing your existence differently. And you can't know what it is unless you have experienced it or are experiencing it. And this is why I was banging my head on a brick wall trying to get this across to people. <laughs> and I recently actually met a woman. She came and studied at Islamic College last semester. I was teaching her. And she is now doing her doctorate as so as. And she's now <laughs> writing on the same thing. Amazing. We yeah, we had this whole big conversation. And I said to her, I know what you are trying to get across. Because it's something that you can't see. Yeah. You can't see that someone's having a different experience of existence from mm -hmm. someone else. But it's so different. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, so yeah. And then I was doing my doctorate in spirituality and spiritual dimensions that Islam opens up. And I read some of the publications that the college was publishing that contain narrations from the imams of the Ahlul Bayt, progeny of the Holy Prophet. And I had naturally always had a respect for the family of the Holy Prophet, even though I didn't know too much about the family of the Holy Prophet. But, but that was a shift. So I just felt, again, according to my logic, that it just made more sense to go to his family for the teachings mm -hmm. and the spiritual teachings. And that, that's when I switched schools, you could say. And then that has a whole other, that's a whole other landscape of spirituality as well, which some of which has, according to my research, that some of it developed into Sufism. So that's why you've got that overlap, the whole foundation of Walaya. And, but of course, again, my primary foundation in Islam is always how do we experience existence? Mm -hmm. What is existence and how do we experience it? And how do we be rooted in reality? So even within the Shi'i landscape, of course, then you've got all the politics as well. And it, because of what is fundamental to me is how are you as a human being? Islam Whatever school you follow, mm -hmm. Islam is about how are you as a human being? What is your akhlaq? How do you people? What is your akhlaq? I'm just going to translate for people. Oh, sorry, yeah. Know, it's etiquette or, or way of behavior, right? 
What is your behavior towards other people? What is so the thing that I like about the 12 Ashiti path is that it integrates rationality with spirituality. Mm. So oftentimes the Sufi tradition, some of the Sufi tradition then got reintegrated back into Mm. Shi culture. Mm-hmm. So there's an overlap there as well. But oftentimes Sufism prioritizes direct knowledge of the divine. So it, don't, it prioritizes this experience, ineffable experience over the rational. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't know what Allah is. You can't know what God is or reality is through rationality. It has to be through direct experience. But the teachings of the imams say that you need to dovetail them. To, you need to put them together. You must also cultivate your rationality. What I feel is, that's what I like about it, because we are thinking beings. Because what this guru did way back was he was very anti-thinking, and he demonized thinking and made it that you don't think. And he said, your thoughts are like clouds with a big hook underneath. You have to feel, you have to experience. But what I found was that if you suspend your rationality, that's very dangerous as well. You're switching off your, your processing faculty and almost like negating, oh no, I mustn't think, I mustn't rationalize, I mustn't weigh things up, analyze, I mustn't do that because that's getting in the way of my experience of the divine. But the path of Ahlubayt says, the path of the family of the Holy Prophet says that you have to cultivate your intelligence and you have to it's not enough just to practice. And I, I would say that people that I know that have focused upon experience over and above rationality, they haven't sought out clarity in terms of their thinking. What I have found is that as the years have gone by, they're still chasing that feeling of connecting to the divine, but they haven't sorted out their thinking. They're still confused. They're still lost in their thinking. Tell me more about that. So I'm so fascinated by this because in this podcast, we talk a lot about the experience of the divine, right? So tell me more about the experience versus the thinking of the divine. What do you mean by the difference between these two ways of being, of approaches? We need to have our rationality Mm -hmm. because we're living in the material world. We're not free of the material world until we leave. (laughs) So you need to have that rationality in order to discern whether what you are getting in terms of experience, legitimate or not. Because, for example, over the years, I have come to feel that the spiritual experience or the spiritual encounter with the divine that people are chasing and looking, they have in their mind this beautiful, warm feeling. Oh, mashallah, and I, had this, I just had this great feeling of being connected to God. It's so beautiful. But oftentimes, you can't get away from tragedy can't get away from challenges mm-hmm. in life and most human beings go through very dark periods devastation heartbreak disappointment loss and sometimes feeling stuck and sometimes not feeling close to mm-hmm. Allah so if we define being connected to Allah as this annihilation in Allah where oh I'm just so ecstatic and that's like the goal we actually set ourselves up disappointment because even the top theologians and in different traditions have said those who can reach that experience of are a handful. It's very rare to really experience a real ecstatic encounter with the divine. So if you don't have that experience, does that mean you're lacking human being or you're failing on the path? And in the meantime, you've got all these stresses piling up in your life. And a lot of the times you don't feel very spiritual or you don't feel what your idea of spiritual is. What do you do for those barren years when you're in the wasteland? Yeah, please do share because I'm sure the listeners are curious to hear how <laughs> different yeah. options and different ways of being. I felt that, so something occurred to me, particularly around the time of Muharram, when we are remembering the martyrdom of Imam Hussein, and I've reflected upon, as you do in Muharram, people delve deep into what happened to Imam Hussein and what it means. And one thing that I came away with was that Imam Hussein confronted malevolence. So his his meeting of the armies of Yazid on the plains of Karbala was a meeting of a pure soul, coming together of a pure soul with 
darkness and corruption. And like I said, he confronted ugliness, everything that is ugly, the ugly underside of humanity. And so I got from that spirituality is not just this ecstatic experience of divine. The spirituality is the confrontation with darkness and being able to face that, whether that's in ourselves or in society. And spirituality is actually enduring darkness. And it is having that inner endurance, sabr. It is cultivating that inner endurance, going deeper and deeper within ourselves in order to, you could say, locate that place of endurance within us, developing that I realized this is what spirituality is. It's not enough to go down the path of spirituality if you are not equipped to deal with evil. And a lot of people, even in the Shi community who go down the path of Irfan, they call it Irfan, which is very Neoplatonic, has a lot of Neoplatonic influences. And it's all about, we're seeking the light. We want to escape the darkness. We're seeking the light. Mm -hmm. So they go down this path of seeking the light. They are not taught how to confront darkness and how to deal with evil. And I would say that today in the world we're in, to be an Arif, to be someone who has that spiritual knowledge, it's not just about sitting there and, oh my God, I'm just so spiritual. I'm just so spiritual. It's like, I love the American accent. What do you do with that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's so I slipped into that. It was a California accent too. Oh my God, I'm just so spiritual. Yeah. So it was more like an LA accent. I'm so. really enjoying this. Yeah. And that for me, I've become, because of seeing the brutality of this world, it's like, how do you be a spiritual person in a world that is full of so much ugliness and brutality? And I feel that also, if you are not quit to overcome evil, then there's something missing in your spiritual path. You are of no use to anybody if you cannot be someone who knows how to combat evil. So, and again, this is where the intellect comes in because it's about in order to combat evil, you have to be able to discern it. The thing with what this guru did in my late teens was that he, which is again, very devious psychological trick, was that he undermined people's trust in their own intellect. That's what he cultivated in his teachings. Don't trust yourself, just trust the teacher. And we have a similar thing in Sufism. The yes. teacher knows everything. You don't know. So you put your trust, put your total trust in the teacher and listen to the teacher. If you have a doubt in the teacher, that's a problem with you. That's yeah. not a problem with the teacher. And for me, that's evil because it's undermining your whole foundation of yourself. Yeah. So what I did with when I left this guru was that I am going to start to trust my perceptions mm. and my understanding. I'm going to start to trust that. And I have, and that's what I've cultivated for 25 years. You have to develop that ability. Your Imam Ali talks about insight, the absolute imperative, the necessity of having insight. If you don't have insight, you don't have anything. And that's a big part of spirituality, having insight. And so that's what I've cultivated over the years. And it can make you sound harsh sometimes, but the more you cultivate that insight, the more you go, no, that's not true. Or no, that's not real. Or there's some deception going on here. Or yeah. you start to see behind what's going on. It's about not being deceived, not being fooled, not being manipulated. And you know, yeah, that's, that's this is really profound. Thank you for sharing. As someone who was in a Sufi cult, I would say, and yeah. unfortunately, it took a long time for me to spot the deception. I wish I had had enough critical approach to spotting it. But at this point now, I can relate to you in, in needing to use our mind as well as our bodies in this process of being discerning, right? of, of trusting yeah. our intellect as well as our feelings and emotions, and they, they go hand in hand. It's yeah. really quite profound to think about that your path is how to endure the darkness. That sounds heavy. Tell me more, because I'm curious, this world has a lot of darkness, but there's also light. So how do you yeah. find moments of joy, of light in a world that has so much ugliness and brutality and violence? Right now we're witnessing the genocide of Palestinians and mm. Gaza. How do you find the light amidst your cultivation of this really amazing resilience? So what I have found is that I generally don't seek happiness, whatever that may be, but 
what I do value is peace. Mm. And I think that Islam gives you that. It helps you to be rooted within yourself. So mm. if you are rooted within yourself, then you have that sense of calm and peace, which I value hugely. <laughs> yeah. And where I get joy is from nature. So this is what is, gives me that, you could say, relief. I think it's a gift from Allah. Mm. Human beings make this world a very painful place, but what has been given to, to us in the natural world, the leaves changing now that we're in autumn, leaves changing color, the birds. Yesterday I was looking at dolphins, picture of two dolphins swimming ahead of a whale. And I'm like, I look at this and I'm like, that is incredible. Mm. So reflecting upon what I do is I try to, because Islam also talks about man or the human being in the cosmos. Mm. So I reflect upon myself as a human being in space. And I love stars at night. So unfortunately, we don't really see them here in London. <laughs> but if you have the opportunity to go to the desert or to go somewhere where you can really see the stars at night and you sit and you that's what I mainly do. I reflect upon myself as this little person, little human being that was brought into existence on planet Earth. We are all earthlings on planet Earth. We've all got our time. hundred years time, we won't be here. And we've all got our story of what's going to happen to us on planet Earth while we're here. And planet Earth is in this solar system and the solar system is in. And that's what I do. I, I think about myself as a being in space on this planet. And that we've all got a story. Humankind has a drama that has to play out. And you just go through your life playing out what's been written for you in a way and making dua, making supplication to, to alter. You can alter your, what happens to you through supplication. So you have that relationship with divine. And that's how I get my peace by just remembering that the divine has brought me into existence. I will have my story. Everyone will have their story. And that story will come to an end and we pray for a good from here. Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing. Moving on to the idea of the healing path. And you might have seen I speak a lot about the spiritual path and the healing path. How do you understand that? And how do you see that going hand in hand with your spiritual journey? Healing paths. The idea of that they're walking a path. And for a lot of Muslims, it is to jihad and nafs or the struggle with the soul. It could be interpreted however each human interprets it. So how do you yeah. interpret of this? My father left when I was two years old and I stopped seeing him when I was five. Or he stopped seeing us, me and my brother, when I was five. My brother was eight. <clears throat> and that for me was always a very painful thing. It's very, it's devastating not to see your father and to grow up without a father. Yeah. So that was a big, you could say, wound for myself and for my brother and for my mother as well. So, you, so you're going around carrying kind of post-trauma, post-traumatic, what now would be recognized as post-traumatic stress symptoms. And that can include self-hatred, now read, because having read into it, a lot of the things you go through, you look back and go, oh, that was all post-traumatic stuff. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't know at the time. Often self-hatred, low self-esteem. Mm -hmm. anger and feeling bad for being angry. I'm an ugly, nasty person because I feel angry, rage. I'm, an, I'm a nasty, ugly person because I feel rage and hurt that you've been, in your mind, you've been rejected by your parent. He didn't reject us, but whatever circumstances, he stopped seeing us. And so that was, I suppose you could say, one of the most painful things in my life. And in my 20s, I didn't know what to do with all this rage and anger. And you try to channel it into creativity, creative things, writing, painting. Interestingly, Islam, the Quran says that we will rem remove the anger from your heart. And I found that when I came into Islam, the, this anger and rage had subsided. I had found peace because I guess you, you're connecting to the transcendent. So these other things that happen in your worldly existence no longer dominate you because you have a higher connection to something, some, something else that is above and beyond whatever happens to you in this worldly life. 
my father also has personality disorder and and I hadn't really understood that in my 20s. So I met him when I was 19 and it didn't go well because of his personality disorder. So I had to give up on this idea that I will ever have a relationship with my father and just lay that to rest. You're never going to have that and you have to accept it. So I think that's been something that I've had to learn to heal. And Islam has helped me to heal that in a way, because obviously as you get older, you start to see your parent more as a fallible human being. You don't expect them to deliver all of these ideal things you're looking for. And he did message me a few years ago through Facebook. That was the first message in 25 years. I think it was about 25 years. And messaged me through Facebook and didn't say, hello, how are you? He just wrote, when you do your interviews, you have a habit of looking down. To keep the attention of the audience, make sure you look at the interviewer at all times. Look at my videos on YouTube and you will see. I'm sorry, that must have been so painful. <laughs> the funny thing was, I thought, this is so off out in some planet. Like, he's really off on some planet. Like, yeah. it didn't hurt. I felt sorry for him because I thought, this is coming from someone who's detached from reality. You've mm-hmm. got to be detached from reality. If that's what you're saying after 25 years. <laughs> to your daughter. Yeah. 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 And I thought to myself, what am I going to reply? So I thought about it for about three days. Imam Ali, he always says, he does what, Imam Ali says in one narration, he says that it is good to reflect. If you want to reply to somebody about something, re- reflect on it for about three days mm-hmm. before you reply. I reflected on it. So I thought, I wrote back and I said, thank you for the tip. That's all. Yep. <laughs> and did he respond? And he did one of those blue thumbs up. Oh dear. That was it. That was, yeah. that is our total communication in 25 years. And I think I heard from my grandmother, because I'm in touch with my grandmother now, his mother. She said, oh, he was so happy when you replied to him. And he's hoping I'm going to go back and reconnect. But I know I can't because of his personality disorder. Yeah. And part of that disorder means that he's in this fantasy world and he makes things up. Mm-hmm. So when you have a conversation with him, you're not talking to him. You're talking to a personality that he has invented. And he's telling you things that he's made up, that he's expecting you to believe. Yeah. So it's, I can't have a relationship with someone who's in a fantasy world. Yeah. And I see him as... Yeah. yeah. And, but I noticed then that's like what I think Islam does. And I said this to people in a couple of talks. Sometimes you don't feel the benefits of Islam all the time. Mm-hmm. But what I've noticed is you notice the benefits at crisis times or mm-hmm. at crunch times. And all of that training, reflection, dhikr, salah, discussion on Allah, discussion mm-hmm. on ourselves, that kicks in when it has to. And then Oh, wow. All of this training, all of this self-analysis and practice and fasting and whatever. And now I'm seeing the benefits because it hasn't shaken me. If I'd been in my 20s prior to Islam and he's written to me like that, I would have been devastated mm-hmm. and I would have been really thrown off kilter for months and I would have been angry and upset and not known how to react. This time it's, it's, it is what it is. That's perfect. Thank you. You just answered the question I was going to ask, which was, you keep on saying Islam does this, it's helped me. And I was like, how does it do? And I think you just answered the question in in sharing that all the years of the work, quote unquote, all the things you mentioned, helps you come to a point when you deal with difficult people, difficult situations, you can get through it. Yeah. 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 And I think those tools are instilled within us, Mm -hmm. sometimes without you realizing So one of the things that attracted me when I came into Islam was seeing the resilience of Muslims. I don't like that word because the British government's using it at the moment. So everyone's got these, their resilience projects at the moment because then they get funding from the government. But anyway, but I did notice with the Muslims that I met Mm. way, way back when I was coming into Islam, that they've got this resilience and calmness in how they deal with huge challenges. And I want that. I want to be like that. And I think that after all of this time, not saying I'm perfect, I've still got reflection to do and work to do. And I'm not saying I'm always calm when something comes up. But I would say that there have been occasions where there's been a challenge 
And without even thinking consciously about it, all that training just mm -hmm. kicks into action. Mm -hmm. And you handle the situation almost spontaneously mm -hmm. because you've done all that training and the training kicks in. That's so yeah. interesting. Question for you, because you're also, I would say, a scholar of Islam and in the Shia community and a spiritual leader. I'm sure that people come to you and they talk about their struggles, their difficulties praying, their difficulties doing the work. What do you tell people who talk about the difficulties doing the work? Because it sounds like this work is what gets us the place of that we're all longing for, the healing, the spiritual path. And I also work with so many women who also struggle in the same way. So tell us, how do you respond to these people? How do you help people and guide them to do the work? I always try to be real and because I feel that a lot of the difficulties that people have, the Muslims have, arise from the fact that they have been given a narrative of Islam that somehow clashes with the reality they are experiencing. They're saying that I'm experiencing really bad things or difficult things or challenges, and it's making it difficult for me to practice Islam. Therefore, I feel like I'm a bad person and everyone's trying to encourage me to be on the path and coerce me to be on the path, but I can't because I haven't got an answer to mm. this, these issues. I suppose you could say validate their issues. And sometimes they are sent to me by their parents, even though they're in their twenties. <laughs> Can you fix my daughter? Mm. And oftentimes I will say to the young woman, most of the time it's young women, I will say that what you are experiencing is true and valid. And maybe the reason why you feel you can't be a good Muslim is because of the idea of Islam that you are being expected to fulfill. And that idea of Islam doesn't work in our society. It's an ideal, mm. but it's not addressing the reality that's in front of you. So I just try to be real with them. And I just try to say, yeah, it's understandable that X, Y, Z is happening to you or has happened to you because this is what this life is about. This is what existence is about. If that's making you question Islam, what can Islam do for you? Then that's good. Let's look at that and let's start to think in hours because that's what Islam is about. It's not just about, I have to live up to this ideal, but it's about, let me think about this. Let me analyze it. Let me step by step work it out. Just because I'm questioning doesn't mean I'm out of the fold of Islam, doesn't mean I'm a bad person. And so that's what I try to do. Yeah. I must say your students, your community are really lucky to have someone like you who can give them a reality check, right? Because often so many leaders will just guilt people into saying the problem isn't Islam. The problem is you're not fulfilling your duties. Therefore, yeah. you are a bad Muslim, right? And I love the fact they're saying our modern reality is difficult. And it makes sense why Muslims are struggling to carry out their ritual practices, why they're yeah. struggling to keep within the boundaries of Islamic behavior. Yeah. Right? It makes sense. Yeah. So I really appreciate that you just give them a reality check and speak the truth because a lot of Muslim scholars and leaders are not doing that. And I think they're harming people more than they are helping them. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yes. So. The guilt tripping is awful. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I, and I say to youth, I say to young people, when I, when I talk to young people, I say to them, the rules of Islam are strict. They are tough. They are not easy. But have a think about where you might be if they weren't there. I have contemporaries, people that I went to school with who are dead now because of drunk drink and drugs. And they just got lost because they had absolutely zero guidance on anything. They grew up with nothing and they got lost in their minds. Some have been sections. They got lost in their minds. They go down certain spiritual paths, get totally lost mentally, never come out of that. So that's what I say to them, that if you don't have those rigorous guidelines, then you can go down a self-destructive path. But I'm not, I, I say to the youth, I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Try to encourage them. I, I try to say, well done. Rather than guilt trip a, a woman for not wearing hijab. Yeah. For those who are wearing hijab, I say, well done for wearing hijab. Yeah. This is why we need more women in positions of authority and leadership to give this compassion and realness to people. 
and not be on the pedestal. Like I love you to speak to them from where they are at their level. This yeah. is the Sunnah of the Prophet and of Valley and just to speak to people yeah. where they're at. So let's deal with you yeah. where you are at. Exactly. Yeah. As we wrap up, Rebecca, this has been such a really deep and provocative and thought-enriching conversation. Do you have any pearls of wisdom you'd like to share with the listeners uh, to leave us with? I don't feel very wise, but <laughs> pearls of wisdom. I would just say work on trusting your intuition and trusting your rationality and using those together and building that trust within yourself, that trust in your perception of things and your understanding of things. Yeah, that's so important. Thank you so much for being on Rahma Rose. It's been a true pleasure to have you on today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great discussion and thank you for the questions too. Thanks. Are you looking for help bringing more compassion into your life and letting yourself out of the box and into the real you? I'd love to support you on your journey. Check out my one-on-one and group coaching offers and sign up for my mailing list to receive updates about my offers. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook under Dr. Rosa Slan Coaching or visit my website, CompassionFlow.com. Oh, 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 oh.